This is the final episode in a four-part series. Please listen to episodes one through three before continuing with this one. This series contains graphic discussion and details of violence, sexual assault, and homicide. Listener discretion is strongly advised. There is also material that discusses the misgendering of victims. All of the unidentified person's forensic images and unmatched confession art created by Samuel Little will be shared on our social media. Please take a moment to review the images and see if you can help identify the victims. This is the fall line. believes that Samuel Little came out of nowhere. An old man who'd been invisible for 40 years, slipping across state lines and leaving no trace. But that's not reality. People met him, reported him, arrested him, acquitted him. Even as in the phone call you just heard from the 1982 Patricia Mount case, spotted him. After all, Samuel Little was reported on in the paper and on the evening news. Maybe he was called Sam McDowell or by another alias, but his face was shown and widely enough for potential witnesses to call in. And remember, he was brought to trial and acquitted. But now we can pretend he was a silent threat. Maybe it will make us feel less afraid. Our final episode on Samuel Little won't cover the total number of his victims. We haven't come close. They're spread across the United States. You know by now that a third of those women are still awaiting identification or even confirmation. So we focus on the Southeast, where our listener base is strongest and where this show has its roots. Maybe one of these stories will strike a chord. Maybe it will be enough to bring in a tip to add one more name to a face drawn in smeared pastel and tacked up on Texas Ranger Holland's office wall. 
In part four, we continue our state-by-state retracing of Samuel Little's murders to follow the final twist of his southeastern trail. The last of the states, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi. In fact, the last known victim of Samuel Little died in Tupelo, Mississippi in 2005. That's where Little met Nancy Carol Stevens, a 46-year-old mother who was originally from Decatur, Alabama. What we know of her life was published locally, in papers like the Decatur Daily News. Shortly after Little's confessions hit nationwide news, the paper ran a photo of Nancy. It was an old one, taken in 1999. In it, Nancy is pictured at her son's graduation from Auburn University. The pair stand outside in the sunshine. Her son, Adrian, is in his cap and gown. Nancy is dressed in purple and wears gold earrings and a matching necklace. She smiles shyly, but proudly, at the camera. Samuel Little murdered Nancy Stevens in a Walmart parking lot inside of an RV that he owned, and he left her body on the side of the road. Her case was cold until 2018, just like so many others. Samuel Little began killing in the South in 1971 with Mary Brosley. His last murder, as we know it, was of Nancy in 2005, and also in the South. Back to the beginning, but not in a neat circle. Slashing lines back and forth, tearing across a map. So many points in so many cities. Where on those endless highways could he have been stopped? Next to Florida, Mississippi is the southeastern state with the highest number of attacks. Eight murders and two attempted murders, starting as early as 1976 or 1977. There were eight more murders in Louisiana and three in Arkansas. At the time of this series' publication, Little has told authorities that he murdered approximately 50 women in the southeast. It proved an easy place to kill. Over the past few decades, plenty of focus has been put on serial killers' patterns, whether they escalate into ever-increasing peaks of violence, spinning toward inevitable breaking points of capture, a loss of control, whatever that means. Samuel Little once beat a woman so viciously that he broke her spine. He tried to drown another woman in a bathtub. He strangled women in alleys in full view of motel windows, He took them from public places. In at least three different instances, Little murdered multiple women in a single night. If he'd been caught, wouldn't these acts have been seen as his escalations, his mistakes, those loss-of-control moments we mark in other killers like Ted Bundy or Israel Keys, the fatal flaws that got them caught? But if Samuel Little escalated, it was a slow, slow rise— decades long. The South gave him time and place to do what he liked. How many other killers would have done the same if they'd traveled and stuck to hunting the socially vulnerable? Maybe they have. Maybe they're still at it, even today. On April 16th, 1973, it was raining in New Orleans. It was 11.30 p.m., and a heavy downpour rendered the night even darker. A woman named Sarah Brown had just finished her shift at a Canal Street restaurant. 
She stood at the entrance of the building in her white raincoat, gazing out at the storm. She knew she'd have trouble making it back over to Algiers, so according to the Times Picayune, she caught a ride with a fellow worker over to, quote, the corner of Canal and Camp Streets. There, she used a payphone and called her sister, Willetta Duncan, to ask if she could stay the night with her. Of course, Willetta said yes. But Sarah Brown never arrived. The next day, a worker at the Seal Test Dairy Company came across a purse. It looked like it had been tossed over their fence from the street. The purse was Sarah Brown's. And though, as her sister told the Times Picayune newspaper, Sarah had been paid that night, it was empty. Sarah's family feared the worst. And yet, we couldn't find any news coverage of her case until she'd been missing for nearly a month. Then, the Times Picayune ran two articles, describing Sarah as a five foot five black woman weighing about 150 pounds, with medium brown hair, brown eyes, and a medium brown complexion. Both articles noted that she had a scar above her lip. Her only child, Kenneth, was 23 years old when she disappeared. He would be 69 years old before any answers came regarding his mother's case. When that call finally came, he was living with a recent diagnosis of stage 4 cancer. According to Fox 8 News, New Orleans police were able to match one of Little's confessions to Sarah Brown's case. When they contacted Kenneth for a photo, they had a copy sent to Texas. Little confirmed that Sarah was one of his victims. But Kenneth Brown doesn't know much else about that night. His wife, Valerie, told Fox 8 that he doesn't want to know what Little did to his mother. He just wants to know where her body is. Brown told Fox 8 News, quote, The hope is, somehow, miraculously, they find where my mom's bones are lying. That is the one and really only hope. I'm not worried about Samuel Little, what they do to him. He's got life imprisonment. I'm not worried about anything else. All I want is to get my mom's bones. And if I get them, I'm going to put them in an urn. And that's where they're going to stay until eternity. At the time of this recording, Louisiana investigators have not yet found Sarah Brown's remains. And they're not just looking for Sarah. Like their counterparts in Georgia, they're looking at a total of eight confessions. Another of those confessions links Samuel Little to his youngest known victim, a 14-year-old from Jesuit Bend, Louisiana. Jesuit Bend, a tiny outcropping of houses, not quite a town, is in Plaquemines Parish on the west bank of the Mississippi River. Samuel Little's girlfriend, Jean Dorsey, would have been traveling with him by then and had been for at least six years. Down in Plaquemines Parish, Carlene Jones was murdered in 1978 on Thanksgiving night. She was in her own home when Samuel Little arrived. According to WWL Radio, he had learned her mother's name somehow and was able to use that information to lure Carlene outside. Per reporter Jason Brown, who would write about Carlene in 2019, her body was found, quote, the next day near the levee by the intersection of highways 23 and 11. Scant 1970s reporting is available on Carlene, who was a Black girl living in a majority white parish. At the time of her disappearance, there were two very brief stories in the local paper, and then came her obituary. 
She was survived by her mother, her siblings, and her grandparents, as well as a host of other relatives stretching out over Louisiana, mourning a little girl. Carlene, who was nicknamed Muddy by her family and friends, was an eighth grader at Our Lady of Perpetual Help, a Catholic school in Belle Sachet. Reporter Jason Brown interviewed her brother, Ernest Garrison, in 2019. He described Carlene as, quote, quiet, innocent, a regular teenager. Ernest Garrison told WLL Radio, quote, We thought it was somebody she knew because Carlene, she wouldn't leave with no stranger. In a later interview with the Gazette, he reiterated, quote, We never thought it was a stranger. As Jason Brown wrote in the Plaquemines Gazette, quote, Although it received little to no media coverage at the time, her death shook the community. According to Brown's interviews, neighbors began locking their doors, something that was unknown in the parish before Carlene's death. Like other families, Carlene's mother and siblings were left with the what-ifs. What if we had been there, or stopped here, or called then? In particular, her older brother Ernest felt especially keen guilt. According to Jason Brown, Ernest hadn't been home the night of Carlene's disappearance. He'd been out celebrating his birthday. When Ernest made it back, Carlene's body had already been found. Ernest told Brown that he'd driven out to the levee to see for himself, but the police weren't letting anyone through. So Ernest went back to the home that he'd shared with his sister, and he broke down. She didn't deserve to die that way, he told the Gazette. It seems unlikely that there was much of an investigation, but no one can say for sure. And now, no one can check to see exactly what was done. According to Brown, quote, the case files from Joan's murder had been destroyed in either Hurricane Katrina or in the Plaquemines courthouse fire. That's something investigators discovered after Little's confession when they were attempting to match his memories to the crime. It was the specificity of his recall of the parish's name, though he misremembered Plaquemines slightly, that led them to Carlene in the first place. There are more cases to cover. Jane Doe's and unmatched confessions, desperate for public attention, for just one small push to spark a memory. The FBI has been prioritizing the publication of discussions of those cases between Texas Ranger Holland and Samuel Little on their website. One of the unmatched confessions is from New Orleans in approximately 1982. Little has done a sketch of a woman, in profile, whom he depicts as having close-cropped hair and bony features. His note on the picture reads, Little Woods, Girl in Water. In the following interview, he discusses his memories of this victim with James Holland. She was pretty, a light-skinned, brown, honey-colored kid. And she was about five, she's about... Tall, she was tall for a woman, mm-hmm. about five, eight, five, nine, and it's a beautiful shape. And uh, she's friendly. And how much do you think she weighed? Uh, she had a beautiful body, a beautiful 150. Well put together. And uh, how old do you think she was? She was about 30. Okay. And she's a black female. Yeah. And tell me where you met her. 
I met her in, in a, a, a nightclub in New Orleans. Her and her sister was two. She had her two sisters. Her and her, two, her, her youngest sister was having a birthday party. Her sister was dancing with this guy on the floor. And when I come in, the girl that I was with offered me to dance for me. And while we were dancing, she says, uh, you, want, you want to go riding after this, you know, after this party's over? We walked outside and she looked and seen my car at Lincoln. She said, ooh, you know, that's a beautiful car too. So she had arm in arm, walking to the car, we got in, stopped at the gas station. We were on the highway 10 and uh, going toward Slidell. I seen the sign say Miller Woods. Mm -hmm. So I cut off, I took off the exit, went, and that sure enough was the road leading into the woods. <laughs> and we went in and parked. So we finally got to where we were going, and it was by, uh, by a river, a little water thing, and the big, uh, they had a machine out there in that little river. Dredging. Dredging. Okay. I grabbed it by the legs and pulled it to the water. Mm -hmm. That's the only one that I ever killed by drowning. Describe the location where I, she's left. Okay, I left her with her head still laid in the water, half her body in the underwater, and the, her thighs and legs on the bank. This victim has not been located, but there is at least one family who believes she may be their missing loved one. According to a WWL-TV article published in November of 2019, Sandra Wyatt sat frozen when she saw a news story about Samuel Little's Louisiana killings on her local news. When the portrait of Girl in Water appeared on her TV screen, she immediately thought of her sister, Andretta Wyatt. According to an interview Sandra granted WWL-TV, many of the facts of the case seemed to match up. Her sister, Andretta, disappeared in July of 1983. From what she'd been able to put together, Andretta had last been seen at a local club with a man. The physical description was very similar too, but it didn't all fit. Specifically, some of the details Little has shared about the unidentified victim's home life and Andretta's known living situation. Still, Andretta could be a match, but so far... There have been no updates in this case. Girl in Water is not the only confession that includes a Louisiana woman still waiting for a match, or even for a body. Another such confession involves a victim that we call M3 Monroe because that's what Little titled her portrait. We aren't sure what the M3 is meant to signify, but he says she was murdered in Monroe, Louisiana, sometime between 1987 and the early 1990s. According to Monroe reporter Maya Hudgens, the Washita Parish Sheriff's Office has narrowed down a few things about the victim. She was a Black woman of about 24 years old and was most likely killed in the early 90s, not the late 1980s. But they haven't matched her to an open case. Little didn't verbally describe the victim, but he did a portrait of a young woman with medium-length curly hair and prominent cheekbones. As always, hair and eye and skin tone seem more up to Little's mood than any real attempt at accuracy. They could be any shade. 
When you go to our website or social media, take a look at the art there with that in mind. There is one more Louisiana victim without a name. This time, though, investigators have matched Little's confession to a Jane Doe down in New Orleans. We've seen her called Orleans Parish Jane Doe, and she was murdered in 1982. In this case, there's both forensic art provided by law enforcement, plus their reports to add to Little's portrait and memories. With both sources, we're able to piece together a little more information. According to WWL reporter Thomas Prumian, the victim is described as a white female, blonde hair, blue eyes, between 34 and 44 years old, 5'4 to 5'6, and about 140 pounds. Little's memory of her hairstyle and the forensic artist's rendering are quite different in depiction, but that's common enough. By the time she was found in 1982, her remains were mostly skeletonized. There is a mild resemblance between the two portraits, and Little's recollection of the crime scene has convinced investigators that he was involved. Perumian interviewed VICAP representative Christy Palazzo, who was able to provide more detail on the case. Quote, he met her in the bar, took a liking to her at the bar. He ran out and bought her a gold necklace, came back and gave it to her. She ends up leaving with him. Together, they drove down Interstate 10. They exited near Little Woods and parked in a park-like area with a river nearby. He ended up killing her and leaving her body there, end quote. But it seems that after Samuel Little strangled the Orleans Parish Doe, he ran into some trouble, serious trouble. He'd murdered the Orleans Parish Doe on the bank of a river off of Interstate 10, and he'd left her there. But when he attempted to leave the scene, he discovered his car's tires were stuck in the riverbank's mud. According to WWL's interview with Palazzo, he had to call for a tow truck and have his car extracted from the muck. Little remembered that a white male was operating the vehicle. And as far as we know, there were no reports of suspicious activity that night. Samuel Little, he was unfazed. By the time the woman's body was found... Samuel Little had murdered several more times. In fact, he'd murdered someone just before he met the Orleans Parish Doe and left her on that riverbank. It seems that just prior to the murder of the Orleans Parish Doe, Samuel Little and Jean Dorsey had been a good distance from New Orleans, further southeast in a little place called Gray. That's a town of less than 10,000 in Terrebonne Parish, where Little killed a 55-year-old grandmother, Dorothy Richard, in 1982. Apparently, he'd been living nearby, in the Schriever area of Homa. We assume with Jean Dorsey, though she isn't specifically mentioned in the news reports. Dorothy met Samuel Little in late August or early September. The circumstances are unclear. He would eventually dump her remains off Louisiana State Highway 24, reportedly behind a church. Lisa Pierre, Dorothy's granddaughter, spoke with WDSU about hearing that news. She couldn't help imagining what it was like for her grandmother in a car with Samuel Little. Quote, she was such a people person, a great lady, so well-known, so well-liked. I can't imagine the pain and fear she must have had. Another granddaughter, Monique Stepter, was only five when her grandmother was killed. Her memories are hazy. 
After word came that Little had confessed to the murder, she told Homa Today reporters that the family was planning a special kind of memorial, some kind of ceremony, to mark the experience. She said, quote, We knew she was murdered, but we never knew how. This makes it feel like it's 1982 all over again. I never thought that we would go through this. There are several generations who never met my grandmother. He took a precious jewel from us that created this family. Little confessed to being behind another Homa case. By the time he returned to Homa, Gene Dorsey had been dead eight years, and he was traveling solo. Daisy McGuire, a 40-year-old woman, was murdered in February of 1996. The reporting around Little's confession in 2018 doesn't give much on Daisy's past. We know that she was one of 14 children, had close sibling relationships, and that she had a husband. According to her brother, who spoke with CBS4 in Homa, Daisy's body was discovered a week after she went missing. He described her as being crammed into a, quote, small slot off Magnolia Street, a space he said, quote, was no larger than a casket. Her body had frozen. The family waited decades for answers. And when those answers came, the details came too, and they were difficult to hear. Daisy's brother, Bobby Simmons, told CBS, quote, This man beat this girl with a jack iron in her head. And I always thought about, what was she feeling? What was she going through? Because, you know, it's just a lot. My daddy always said, whatever you do, protect your sisters. And this guy got a choice. My sister didn't have a choice. In another interview with Fox 8, he said, quote, If I would have ever thought I could have prevented this, believe you me, brother. I'd lay down my life so that she could live. A month before Daisy was murdered, Samuel Little was in Opelousas, Louisiana. It sits at the junction of US 190 and Interstate 49 in St. Landry Parish. It's a little town, but has several draws. It's home to an important point on the Louisiana African American Heritage Trail, the Creole Heritage Folklife Center. There's also a racetrack and a casino in town. When Samuel Little was in Opelousas in 1996, he met a 24-year-old woman named Melissa Marie Thomas. The Daily World reported that she was found strangled under a pecan tree in the local cemetery. Per the world, Little provided the following information about Thomas that he'd met her in town and they decided to go to the local cemetery to use drugs. He'd begun to touch her neck. Reportedly, she asked him, are you a serial killer? In response, Little began to strangle her. Then he slipped out of the cemetery and left the area unnoticed. Daily World reporters spoke to the local police chief who said the case had sat heavy on the town's investigators. They had no suspects in Melissa's murder. In fact, the sheriff told the Daily World that they couldn't find any physical evidence at all. Quote, We did what we had to do in processing the body, looking for fingerprints. We ordered a rape kit performed, and the results showed no evidence from sexual assault. As we looked for a motive and a person, we couldn't find anything from our sources out there on the street. End quote. And in this case... We trust that they looked. According to the New York Times, Melissa Thomas, the victim, was the cousin of police chief Thomas's wife. 
Though Samuel Little's confession came in 2018, the police had been actively working Melissa's murder since 2009. That's when her siblings had reached out and asked them to take another look at the case. They felt that their parents had never recovered from Melissa's loss, that, quote, they died from broken hearts. When resolution finally came, Melissa's sister, Dr. Emma Thomas, spoke to KATC News. Quote, it gets to a point where you just want to break and give up. I've learned that patience is a virtue. Melissa's brother, Reginald, was also quoted. Quote, it's been 22 years now, and I miss her just like it was yesterday. Melissa Thomas and Daisy McGuire were Samuel Little's last known Louisiana victims. Save for Nancy in Mississippi, they were his final victims in the Southeast, as far as we know. But time isn't our only guide here, because there's more ground to cover before we end in Mississippi. First, we head west to Arkansas, where Samuel Little killed three women in the early 1990s. One of those cases has since been resolved, but the public's help is needed to close the others. On July 20th, 1990, the body of a woman was discovered in West Memphis, Arkansas, just over the border from Tennessee, where Little claims to have picked her up. According to WREG News Channel 3, Tennessee's cold case investigators heard about Samuel Little's confessions and began to go through their own files to look for possibilities. They eventually arranged to interview him. Later that year, the Memphis cold case team reached out to Crittenden County, Arkansas Sheriff's Department, asking to collaborate on a case. They believed that Samuel Little had murdered a woman in Tennessee and then dumped her body over the state line on the banks of the Mississippi River. As WREG reported, Little estimated the woman, who he did not name, to be 28 or 29 years old and he identified her as a sex worker. The medical examiner would later estimate her height as about five foot two and her weight at under 100 pounds. Little told investigators that he killed her in his car. In fact, he strangled her while a Memphis PD patrol car drove right by him. He took her remains over state lines to slow down any investigation, and it worked. By the time she was discovered by a fisherman, at least three weeks had passed and Little was long gone. Her remains had decomposed to the point that the medical examiner was unable to discern her eye color, but he did note her hair color, black. He also described her clothing and the contents of her pockets. NamUs records indicate that she wore a short sleeve maroon blouse with a ruffled collar and blue jeans. And in her pockets were some unusual objects, 64 bullets. That may seem like a lot, but these were very small rounds, about the size of a peg that would fit in a child's light bright toy. If this Jane Doe was in the habit of carrying such things, people would remember. It seems that samples of her remains were sent for testing in 1990, and per WREG, her DNA is on file, awaiting a possible familial match. Though she has a NamUs page, there isn't any forensic art available, although they do provide a single ruled-out case, that of Alice Sullivan, who disappeared from Davidson, Tennessee, in 1986. Arkansas authorities are also investigating an unmatched confession, the murder of a woman Little calls Ruth. He says he murdered her between 1990 and 1994. Her murder is recounted in one of the rare FBI interviews that have been shared on the Bureau's official site. 
According to Samuel Little, he met Ruth in Little Rock in the winter. He remembers there being snow in what the FBI describes as a transient area. One of the unusual features of this confession is that Little mentions that he stayed with the woman he remembers as Ruth for approximately three days. During that time, he came into contact with a number of her friends. North Little Rock. Tell me what that girl looked like. Oh, man, I loved her. I forget her name. Oh, wait, I think it was Ruth. Okay. She was a heavy set, big old yellow girl and had buck teeth. He had a gap between the teeth, that's what it was. And she, she was like a honey-colored skin. And she had, uh, like, her hair was not really long. It was, How tall do you think she was? She was about five, seven. How much do you think she weighed? She weighed about close to, to 200, about 170. 180. Pretty pretty big girl. Yeah. Right. Now, where did you meet her at? Okay, down in the crack house. I was, they would heard about six other girls were sitting on the porch. Doing some crack in there. I stopped to go in there. I seen the girls, that's why I stopped. We stayed together two days or more. I think about three days. We was going shoplifting. We went to Sears. We went to uh, Coors, and that's where I got busted. Mm-hmm. They took me to jail, and she went and stayed in the car. And the manager of Kroger's, I guess he got tired of her laying on his property in that car. He called the station where I was at in North North Arkansas to drop the charges. Mm -hmm. So he can come down and get this gal in the car out of him. They cut me loose. So we, was headed toward with that place where Walmart's uh, original store bent. I whipped off the road and back into that little woods. It was a cornfield back there. I pulled through it, and on the other side of the cornfield was a trash pile. I parked the car facing out where I could see anybody coming in. So I, I pulled her out of the car. She's too big for me to carry, carry her. So I just pulled out the car and laid on that trash that was left there. So was it like a cornstalk pile or was it? Yeah, a bunch of cornstalks. What could you see from there? Uh, I could see the highway mm-hmm. and uh, in the woods is that way. But it's right outside of Little Rock. Uh, I was about 10 miles from it. From North Little Rock, you think 10 miles? Yeah, it was about 10 miles. Okay. Police believe this murder could have taken place in 1994 because there's a record of Little as having been arrested in North Arkansas for shoplifting at a Kroger in that year. That was in April, not generally a cold month in the South. And it didn't snow that April. We checked. But Little picks and chooses what he wants to dredge up. He clearly recalled, for instance, from the FBI's own reporting, quote, He was released after approximately three hours so that he could move his vehicle, a 1978 yellow Cadillac Eldorado, or possibly a yellow Dodge, off the grocery store's property. Little stated that when he returned to his vehicle, the woman was sleeping inside. He first drove the woman to meet her ex-boyfriend, a man called Bear, then drove her back to her residence, end quote. 
Then he told investigators about the cornfield. The only other thing he recalled that might help identify Ruth was that her mother lived in North Little Rock. Police have certainly been searching their case files, but what about the people who weren't reported missing? Maybe Ruth's family thought she left town. We hope somehow that they see that portrait and recognize something in it. Little's last Arkansas confession was of the murder of 26-year-old Jolanda Jones, who lived in the Pine Bluff area. According to the local publication, The Pine Bluff Commercial, her unsolved 1994 homicide was, quote, ruled drug-related, and the case quickly grew cold. From what we can glean from local news reports, the FBI eventually reached out to Pine Bluff authorities rather than the other way around. The Arkansas Times reported that, quote, Little half admitted to killing a woman in Pine Bluff in 1994 and provided details that triggered a file review. When Deputy Terry Hobson compared Little's portrait of Jolanda with her photo, he told reporters that he found the likeness remarkable. As of the writing of this episode, we've been unable to find more details of Jolanda's life. Stress, sleep, recovery, whether we're in the gym or at work, these things shape how we perform. One thing we've both added to our daily routine and it's helped make a noticeable difference for us is NuCalm. Brooke told me about her NuCalm experience this week. She's been using it while her baby naps. So for her, the 50 minute reboot session is perfect. It's a little time she can carve out of her day to relax, de-stress, and, well, reboot. By the time the baby's awake, Brooke feels refreshed and ready for the rest of her day, too. It's imperative to your health and happiness to be able to manage stress and not be managed by it. New Calm gives you the power and control to relax and recharge anywhere, anytime. Own the day with New Calm. NuCalm is the only stress management system of its kind, clinically proven in over 1 million sessions to improve your sleep, reduce your stress, and boost your recovery without drugs and side effects. The NuCalm system uses cutting-edge neuroscience and consists of three non-invasive and non-pharmaceutical items, all of which are included in your monthly subscription that costs less than a daily cup of coffee. The whole process is easy to use and to work into your daily routine to achieve better sleep, reduction in stress, and boost in recovery. Do what we did. Own the day with NuCalm. We have a special link set up specifically for our listeners. Go to fallnucalm.com and get 50% off your 30-day subscription of NuCalm and their money-back guarantee. That's fall, N-U-C. ALM.com. Ball, N-U-C-A-L-M.com. The final leg of this journey takes us down into Mississippi, back into the 1970s when Gene Dorsey still rode with Sam Little. Through the time two women escaped him, and when a grand jury declined to indict him in a 1982 murder, and all the death that followed until Little's last known murder, Nancy Stevens in Tupelo in 2005. The earliest Mississippi murder may have occurred in 1976, 
This victim is the unmatched confession tied to the portrait titled Gulfport Woman. Little describes her as a Black female in her early 20s and thinks she could have died anywhere between 1976 and 1981. He might have met her in a bar in the North Gulfport area. He believes he left her remains outdoors in a grassy area. According to WLOX News, a cold case investigator in Harrison County is determined to find out who this victim is. Her search has been entirely archival because none of the files in the office from that period of time, 1976 to 1981, have been digitized. Apparently, though they haven't made a match yet, she's come across information that has been helpful in other cold cases. And she's not giving up. Detective Christy Johnson told WLOX, quote, You know, I have 14 years left until I can retire. I'm going to spend those 14 years looking for her. Harrison County isn't unique. Little stalked South Mississippi for years. Gulfport was a focus, but he crossed back and forth from city to city, often meeting a woman in one place and leaving her body in another. Local investigators are still unraveling those connections. One of his earliest known Mississippi victims is an unidentified woman known as the Jackson County Jane Doe. Her body was found in Pascagoula, near then-under-construction I-10 and what would eventually become Highway 613. The Doe Network reports that her remains were discovered by rabbit hunters and that she was skeletonized at the time of discovery. There has been significant forensic artwork done in the Jackson County Jane Doe's case, including a new digital portrait by forensic artist Carl Koppelman, and Little himself has completed a portrait. When Little's confessions began in 2018, Pascagoula detective Darren Versega had already been working the cold case for several years, but he'd had very little to go on. Per WLOX, Versega knew for sure that the victim had prominent front teeth. She also had two gold teeth, her left lateral incisor and her left central incisor, which was capped in an open-faced triangle. He also knew that Mardi Gras beads had been found near her body, but there was no way of knowing if they bore any connection to the case. But when Samuel Little began confessing to a string of Mississippi murders, Versega and other local detectives went out to Texas to interview him multiple times. There were a number of cases to cover, which you'll hear about later in the episode. He told them about one in particular, though, that they had trouble matching. A woman he said had been a pipefitter at Ingalls Shipbuilding in Pascagoula. He remembered that she had rough hands from the work. He also remembered that she was living in Gulfport, but was originally from Jackson. According to the Clarion Ledger, he described her as, quote, attractive. She was in her early 30s, weighed about 130 pounds, and had light skin and an ample bottom, end quote. Jean Dorsey would have been traveling with Little in 1977, but it seems he spent some time with this woman. In fact, he told investigators that he went with her to her boarding house. The Ledger reported that while there, Little had apparently, quote, defecated outside the toilet bowl in a shared bathroom. The woman had cleaned it up and been kind. He told investigators she was, quote, a great woman and would have, quote, made a good wife. But he killed her anyway. 
the ledger recounts his story of her final hours. After a run-in with a man who was a possible former boyfriend of the woman, Samuel Little took her out to eat in, quote, a bar in the Carver Village area. The rest of the night followed his usual pattern. He strangled this woman and dumped her body off a dirt road in a forested area. That same area was a construction zone for a new highway build where rabbit hunters would find her weeks later. This woman was the Jackson County Jane Doe. Combined with a modern review from a medical examiner, Detective Versega suddenly had information in his cold case. Here's what we can tell you about the Jackson County Jane Doe's life, or what is likely true. In addition to what Samuel Little remembers, it's probable that she gave birth to at least one child. She used tobacco. She had either a congenital issue or surgery on one leg, and also a permanent ankle injury that likely caused a limp. The medical examiner believes she was between 35 and 45 years old, and anywhere between 5'6 and 5'10. Little remembers that she had her hair braided in a protective style and wore a wig. He knew this because it fell off when he strangled her. NamUs reports that there was a single plait or braid of hair that was found at the scene of her remains. Right now, the Jackson County investigators are pursuing various means of victim identification, and there are detailed pages up where you can view pictures of her dental work, Little's portraits, and all the various forensic art. We'll share those images as well. Hopefully, the news coverage this case is getting will reach someone somewhere. The use of forensic genealogy is another avenue that looks hopeful in this case. After all, the Jackson County Jane Doe had at least one child. In 1978, another Gulfport case. This time, a woman's body was discovered in what the Sun-Herald describes as a dirt pit. Specifically, quote, her body was found eight to ten feet below a cliff across from the Ed Owens Club. This victim was Julia Ann Critchfield, a 36-year-old woman whose friends describe her as a very private person. According to interviews conducted by cold case investigators in 2016, two years before they knew anything of Samuel Little, Julia was pleasant but kept details of her life to herself. And that life wasn't easy. She was divorced and a mother of four, and her children were staying elsewhere while she tried to find them stable housing. The Herald Sun reported on what they were able to discover. Julia loved karaoke. She didn't drink when she went out, just soda or coffee. She'd recently found an apartment. She didn't own a car and had to rely on her friends for rides. It seems that no one precisely knows what happened on the night of her death, though the Herald Sun notes that she was last seen at Chris's Lounge on Courthouse Road. She wouldn't be missing long. By the next afternoon, her body had been spotted and her belongings found strewn along that dirt pit. Her pantyhose lay along the side of the road. At the time of her murder, investigators didn't find much evidence. And when a modern detective reviewed the old case files, the same investigator in search of the Gulfport woman's identity, she noticed a number of strange things. Interviews with friends indicated that Julia didn't normally hang out on that side of town. 
And per the Herald, quote, Critchfield was wearing a black dress that had been torn and a silver bangle or cuff bracelet with a Virgo sign. Investigators were told she didn't own a dress or bracelet like that. And quote, she wasn't a Virgo. She was a Scorpio, end quote. Investigator Johnson worked the case for a few years, sending materials to the crime lab in hopes of a hit. Per the Herald, she and other investigators were frustrated with the amount of evidence that had disappeared over the years, evidence that would have potentially provided good samples. Quote, the case could have been solved back then if they had the technology that we have today, Johnson told reporters. Julia's children grew up not knowing what had happened to their mother. Although, like Eddie, the brother of Fredonia Smith, who was murdered in Macon, Georgia, they felt like they had a pretty good idea of who had done it. When new focus on Julia's case brought coverage in 2016, news outlets spoke to those children, who were now adults, about their mother's death. They talked about the profound effect the crime had had on their lives. Quote, I really thought I had no purpose in life to go on because she was my world. And to this day, I would give anything, anything for her to be here, said her daughter, June. Their mother had missed out on everything. Their children being a grandmother. According to WLOX, Julia's children reported that their father had been very abusive. They had been removed from the home and placed in protective care. And they believed that he might have murdered their mother. Her daughter Blair told WLOX, quote, He always told her that if he couldn't have her, nobody would have her. Julia's daughters weren't sure how or if their father had ever been cleared of the crime. But then came Samuel Little. He confessed to Julia's murder, along with so many others. And we found little information on the details of her experience. Did he meet her at that club, the one that she didn't usually go to? Did he offer her a ride? Was she walking? Did he overpower her on the street? We can't find the information. Her daughter, June, thinks about her last moments. And when she dreams of her mother at night, quote, I talk to her and I tell her, I have dreams of the horrors you went through. In 1980, something happened. A woman from Pascagoula, Mississippi, she survived. And 34 years later, she would fly to Los Angeles to testify against Samuel Little in his trial for the three 1980 slayings that finally got him caught. We'll call her by her first name only, Hilda, as other reporters have done. Hilda's story has not been widely covered. Most of the information we have on Hilda comes from her trial appearance, where the LA Times notes that she was the first witness. In 1980, she was a sex worker who worked with a tight-knit group of other women. Quote, along one street known as The Front, they looked out for one another. If someone wasn't back in 15 minutes, they would go check on her, end quote. It was Hilda's particular practice to take her customers back to her apartment. And as soon as she entered with Samuel Little, he attacked her with his usual efficient method, a vicious punch. Per the LA Times, she spent an undetermined period of time in and out of consciousness, assaulted on her bed, choked, held underwater in her bathtub, a scarf around her neck, which he used to yank her up for gasps of breath. Then it was back underwater. 
The LA Times reported that Hilda's next moments of consciousness came at the local hospital. She was barely alive. But, quote, she told hospital staff and police that she'd been attacked by a burglar. Her parents were at the hospital, and they didn't know how she'd been making ends meet for herself and her children, end quote. According to the cut, she reported the crime, but as a burglary. We don't know what details she gave police. Jillian Lauren reports that Mississippi detectives were the ones who tracked down Hilda in 2014 and convinced her to testify at Little's trial. They told her that she'd be heard this time around. Hilda would not be the last to escape, but there would be more deaths before another Southern survivor would make it out, eventually to face Little again at trial. In 1981, Samuel Little killed another woman though newspapers reported the death as that of a man. And she was a woman, though she was consistently misgendered in the 1981 coverage of her case. The correct information regarding her gender identity has come from Samuel Little himself, who, quote, confirmed to the Clarion Ledger that the victim was transgender. We don't know the first name that she actually used. Her obituary listed her birth name, also known as her dead name. We reached out to Mississippi authorities, but they didn't return our emails. So for now, we'll call her by her surname, Davis. She was from the Jackson area and 31 years old, but most agreed that she looked much younger, like a teenager. Her story was first reported in January of 1981. That's when the Clarion Ledger ran a brief article indicating that a body had been found off an off-road embankment near I-55. The Clarion Ledger reported that, quote, the victim was a young black male and that, quote, scattered near the body were, quote, women's shoes, a slip, and a piece of a torn bra, end quote. A Clarksdale Press article added that the victim also wore stockings. At the time her body was discovered, her cause of death was pending coroner investigation. It didn't take long to identify her or her cause of death. She had been strangled, and she was a member of a local family, the Davises. None of the available 1981 articles included quotes from her family. In the last articles that we could find on her case, police were still determining whether the extensive bruising on her body had come from a beating or whether she had been thrown from a car. There wasn't another mention until Little's crimes were widely publicized, and it seems it took longer to match Davis's case than others mostly because of confusion over age and year and gender. But local authorities did eventually connect the case to Davis. They've chosen not to discuss further details, and Davis's family has never made any public comment. If you knew her or can give us her first name, please reach out. We'd love to add that information to our website. After the murder of Davis, a second Southeastern survivor would emerge a woman who will also call by her first name, Lelia, who encountered Little in Pascagoula, Mississippi. Lelia was a young mother scraping together a living any way she could. Per the LA Times, she supported her three children through selling shoes, managing the rental of back rooms at a local nightclub to local sex workers, and also through her own sex work. She was out on the local strip one night when she saw a man pull up in a wood-paneled station wagon. The LA Times reported that she told him a date would be $50, and he agreed. 
She'd only been in the car a few moments when his huge fist connected with her skull. The Times wrote that, though he punched her in the back of the skull and between the eyes, she managed to scratch his face, arms, eyes, anything within reach. For Lilia, it must have felt like a waking nightmare. The LA Times reported, quote, She managed to escape from the car a few times. But each time he would drag her back, like ring around the rosies, in and out, she testified. One of those times, a white boy on a bicycle saw her and asked her if she needed help. She opened her mouth, but no sound came out from the choking, end quote. Samuel Little told the kid that Lilia was his old lady, that they were fighting. Lilia's rescue wasn't coming, but somehow she rescued herself. She testified that she was able to scramble to the back of the car and then exit, quote, through the cargo area. And she ran, half-naked and seriously injured, all the way back to her home in the Carver Villages area, near the Strip. The LA Times wrote, quote, People took her to the hospital, where blood seeped from her eyes like tears, and she couldn't swallow for two weeks. No police came to the hospital, and she made no report, end quote. Lilia had little choice but to go out back to work. She was hesitant when, decades later, police finally did show up. But she testified at Samuel Little's trial, too. In episode two, when we told you about the murder of Patricia Mount in Florida, when Samuel Little was acquitted, we mentioned another murder charge. That was in the murder of Melinda Rose Laprie. She was 22 years old and living in Pascagoula, Mindy, as most people called her, had it rough. From what her relatives told the Clarion Ledger, her childhood had been marked again and again by trauma. The death of her mother, severe abuse at the hands of her father, and instability that led to her eventually running away. She began to use drugs and supported herself through sex work. She traveled with a boyfriend who her brother told the Clarion Ledger was, quote, pimping her out. According to her brother, Bob Laprie, the couple settled in Pascagoula and were in contact with her family, but they didn't return home. Mindy eventually became pregnant and gave birth to a son in the months preceding her death. Her brother, Bob, told Ledger reporters that after his sister's murder, he adopted the child, who was now 36 years old. Mindy's boyfriend reported her missing in mid-September of 1982. That's the same month that Samuel Little under his alias of Sam McDowell, had been in Florida and had murdered Patricia Mount. Samuel Little, Jean Dorsey, and their teenage companion, whom we call Jack, covered a lot of ground that month. Three weeks after Mindy's September disappearance, a body was discovered in the Pascagoula Cemetery. Though Mindy had only been missing for a few weeks, her body was not immediately identifiable. An archival Clarion Ledger article quoted then-caretaker Benny Bryant, who said he hadn't mowed since July. There just hadn't been enough rain. But the victim was eventually identified as Mindy Laprie. And that's when her brother Bob felt that investigators' interest waned. In fact, he told Ledger reporters that, because of Mindy's sex work and drug use, he had to push for any sort of investigation at all. Her death was eventually ruled a homicide, but Bob remained frustrated. As in the case of Patricia Mount, Samuel Little wasn't as invisible in Pascagoula this time. He was eventually arrested in October. At first, he was brought in on a shoplifting charge. 
But according to Golf Live, the vehicle Little was driving at the time matched the description of the last car Mindy had been seen in, the one she had entered just prior to her disappearance. So he was charged with her murder. But though a grand jury was convened, they declined to indict. They did learn of his charges in Florida, which implies he was using the name Sam McDowell in Mississippi, too. Detective Darren Versega, who is still working on a number of those Mississippi cases, says that the physical evidence was just too far gone to be of use in 1982. However, Samuel Little was always a suspect in Mindy's murder. And when word finally came out about a serial killer confessing to crimes all over the United States, Mississippi was ready. Mindy LaPree's family had endured a 34-year wait, not only for news, but for the sense that someone really cared about her death. Her brother Bob LaPree told the Clarion Ledger, quote, Mindy came from a loving family, but she just really had some unfortunate turns in her life, with her mother dying when she was just seven. But she was brilliant and a musical genius. She taught herself any instrument she wanted. Mindy was one of the early case solves. And since then, Mississippi has watched his web spread until its threads stretched out of their state and across the nation. After Mindy's murder, Little left Mississippi for a long time. Maybe the close call with a grand jury scared him off. By the time he returned in 1992, Gene Dorsey had been dead for four years. The teenager we call Jack, by then he was a grown man and he had stayed as far away from Samuel Little as he could. But something drew Little back to Gulfport. It was familiar territory. December 7th, 1992. It was a cool night and getting colder, dropping down to around 48 degrees just before midnight. Two friends, Alice Denise Taylor and Tracy Lynn Johnson, had gone out for the night. Alice, who went by Tina, was 27 and Tracy 19. That night, they ended up at a local spot called the Flamingo Club. The two were best friends and often together, despite their age gap and their radically different lives. According to an Archive Ledger article, Tina was the mother of five and had gone through a lot, including a struggle with drugs. In interviews after the resolution of their mother's case, her now adult children spoke with local reporters about their life before Tina's disappearance. They were very small when she went missing and told WLOX reporters that their memories were hazy. One son, Jermaine, remembered Tina had just permed her hair. Another son, Marcus, remembered his mother promising them that she'd get clean. She told them that just before she disappeared. Marcus told WLOX News, quote, She said she wanted to keep us together. She wanted to get all her kids back with her, and she's going to do right. She ended up getting a job, and that's when it all happened. At first, the boys felt betrayed, that she'd let them down. As for her friend Tracy, though she was an adult, her family said that she'd always check in, and it would be quite unlike her to not return home after an evening out. They told WLBT News that she was very sweet, with a ready smile, not the type to worry anyone. But she didn't check in. Per the ledger, the two were last seen by Tina's boyfriend in the parking lot of the Flamingo Club at about 10 p.m. When neither woman returned home, their families became worried and more worried than if it had just been the one. As the local sheriff told the ledger, for both of them to go missing, that's what made their loved ones suspect foul play. Tina's body was found first, 
just a few days after their disappearance. Per WLOX, she had been strangled and tossed onto a pile of discarded tires near the intersection of Alabama and Mississippi Avenues. Her autopsy showed signs of a beating, sexual assault, and strangulation. But there were no signs and would be no signs of Tracy. Not for weeks. Tracy's body was eventually recovered 30 minutes away in Socher, Mississippi, off a dirt road not far from the highway. It was quickly determined that she too had been strangled. Tracy's family was devastated. They'd feared the worst when Tina's body was found, but the news still came as a shock. Connie Hayes, Tracy's cousin, told WLBT, quote, Her brother, he said, it's not going to be Christmas because my sister isn't here. I just remember I was sitting on the porch with my auntie, and he dragged the whole tree outside because he was so hurt that his sister was missing and he couldn't find her. It was a painful holiday for the Taylors and the Johnsons both. WLOX reports that, though local authorities were sure that the same person or persons had murdered the pair, leads quickly dried up. But then came something that we haven't seen in any other Samuel Little cases in the Southeast. Arrests were eventually made. An archived Clarion Ledger article from December 1993 reports that two men, Terry Barnes and Buddy Conway, were arrested in connection with Tina and Tracy's murders, and that a third man was still wanted. They don't seem to have been convicted, and there's no record we could access that shows them as having been in the system for those crimes. The information could be out there, but it's something we can't reach during the pandemic. At least one of Tracy's relatives had at some point the impression that there had been some sort of conviction. After Samuel Little confessed to the murders of Tina and Tracy, both families were interviewed. Tracy's aunt told local news station WLBT, quote, All these years, I thought they had the people that done this. I don't know no other way to explain it. It was just a big, big, big shock. Tina's son, Marcus Taylor, grew up hearing talk about his mother that she'd chosen drugs and she'd gotten what was coming. He told WLOX, quote, Now people can let her name rest in peace. And the things they said, they're going to realize that they aren't true about her. She was, she did change. She just crossed paths with a monster who didn't care anything about her. Though some in Tracy's family thought that the crimes had already been solved with the arrest of Barnes and Conway, WLBT reported that this new information, the truth, finally, brought a kind of peace. Connie, Tracy's cousin, told reporters, quote, Justice has been served for our family. My aunt can rest, and my cousin, she can rest too. So I'm just happy. That was nearly the end of Samuel Little in Mississippi, until Tupelo and Nancy Stevens, the woman who had stood in a beautiful purple dress to smile next to her son, the Auburn graduate, the woman who would be murdered by Samuel Little in 2005 and dumped like garbage, like 92 other women. We can't say we are sorry that Samuel Little sat over in Texas and told his stories, that he sits in Los Angeles and tells them now. But we wish he didn't enjoy it so much. And we wish that he didn't get fan mail or portrait commissions or get to enjoy breathless retellings of what his big boxer's hands might do to a neck. Because those are the stories that he wants you to hear. Not about Nancy's purple dress, or Mindy's baby, or Sarah, who didn't want to walk in the flooded New Orleans streets. 
But people want to learn about serial killers, and that's not going to change. It's natural to want to understand the monster, not the ones that children's stories promised us, the ones who wear their evil on the outside. Instead, we get an unassuming man on a street who knows just what assumptions he can play on. A Jeffrey Dahmer who knows that he can convince police officers that his child victim is his lover. A Lonnie Franklin Jr. who knows that if he picks up a certain woman on a certain street in LA, her body might be found, but her case file, it will be marked as no humans involved. Knowing the killers is important, but it is less about why they do what they do and more about how they get away with it. And it's a nice gesture to read off a list of victim names and to take a moment of silence. But it would be so much better to prevent those deaths in the first place. And to do that, you start at the edges, at the margins, where the killers think, where they know that they can roam. There are still Samuel Littles out there. There must be. They will be uncovered, most of them. And we can shake our heads. But start demanding answers in the cases that don't get coverage now for the victims who aren't considered worthy. Create a society that would have protected them in the first place. If you have any information regarding the Jane Doe's and unmatched cases attributed to Samuel Little, please visit tips.fbi.gov or call 1-800-CALL-FBI. If you would like to speak to a counselor regarding sexual assault, you can call RAIN at call 800-656-HOPE or 4673 to be connected with a provider in your area. Please visit our website and social media to review portraits and forensic renderings of the unidentified victims and the women described in unmatched confessions. Maybe you can help resolve a cold homicide or missing persons case. We'd like to thank all the listeners who've taken time to support our sponsors, leave us reviews, or support our show directly on Patreon. We couldn't do it without you. Special thanks to Angie Dodd. If you'd like to suggest a Southeastern cold case for coverage, please visit thefalllinepodcast.com and click on case submissions. We are also taking national cases for a special season planned for release in 2021. Whether in the Southeast or nationally, we're especially interested in cases involving people who have faced housing insecurity, incarceration, or cases involving the elderly. But as always, we want to hear from any family whose loved one was passed over by media or law enforcement or both. Visit our website to get in touch. A final note, starting in mid-November, the fall line will be taking a break as we work on new cases. We'll be back with new stories and a new schedule, ongoing series that release three episodes a month. In the meantime, we'll be remastering and republishing seasons two, three, and four to improve sound quality. You can also check out the podcast, One Strange Thing, an independent show by hosts Laura Norton and producer Maura Curry, which will be ongoing. The Fall Line is created by Laura Norton and Brooke Hargrove and is produced and engineered by Maura Curry. Written, researched, and hosted by Laura Norton with family and law enforcement interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Research assistants are Kim Fritz, Jessica Ann, Lex Weathers, and Brian Waters. Fact-checking by Brian Waters. Additional research by Haley Gray and Lexi Newhouse. 
content advisors are Brandy C. Williams, Vic Kennedy, and Liv Fallon. Theme music is by RJR. Our current monthly donation goes to the Sovereign Bodies Institute. 